The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. Well, good morning, Mars Hill. How are you? Good. Well, uh, my name is Kyle. I'm one of the teaching pastors. Uh, I haven't been here for a while. I haven't preached in a month. The last time I was up to preach, uh, I got really sick, but by God's grace and some good old medicine, uh, I was able to heal. Well, today we find ourselves in Romans chapter 16, 25 through 27. And uh, you'll notice there's probably a lot of white space after verse 27. That means it's the end. We've made it to Romans. If there's more verses after 27, you should probably talk to one of the pastors afterwards. We'd like to know what version that you're using. Extra stuff. It's been a while. We've been here for a long time. When we started the series in Romans, jokes about the Cubs going to the World Series were still funny. But who's laughing now? You can't tell I'm a Cubs fan, so you got to work that in. Well, some of you may know the next series, where we go next, is Ruth. We're going to talk about that very precious story of a kinsman, redeemer, uh, reaching into the life of Ruth and the faithfulness of the love and the covenant that's made there. It's a beautiful picture, uh, obviously, of Christ and the church. Before we go there, though, uh, you know, as is typical here at Marcel, we like to do a special topic in between books of the Bible. So starting next week, we're going to take a few weeks to hit the pause button on books of the Bible to look at spiritual disciplines. What does it look like in the life of a believer uh, to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit uh, in the things that we cooperate with his work in, such as Bible study or prayer or fasting or evangelism, sort of the ins and outs and the meats of a Christian life. So we hope that that'll be uh, helpful and fruitful to us as we're moving on in the life. Uh, of the church and in in our own journey of faith, and then we will get into Ruth. So last week, we saw that Paul was urging us to maintain the purity of the gospel. And one of the ways we do this is to avoid smooth-talking heresy salesmen. One in specific is Danny DeVito, apparently, was the picture uh, that Jack had up on the sides. I can't get that image out of my head. Like, if I saw Danny DeVito come up to me with a houndstooth hat and a blazer on, I'm walking away. Because that guy is selling me heresy, right? Or at least like a 1999 Toyota Corolla that doesn't have an engine. And one of the other ways we do this is to protect young believers, to protect the naive, to say, hey, check it out. Danny DeVito's lying to you. There's no engine in that car. That's not the real gospel. Instead, come back to Scripture, uh, and that we will see the gospel that was once for all delivered to us by the apostles. Then Paul made a promise. He said that the enemy would soon crush, uh, the, the enemy would soon be crushed under our feet, which is pretty cool, because you think back to the promise that Eve was given after the fall in Genesis 3, it was the Messiah, her seed, that was supposed to crush the serpent. And yet, we know through Revelation in the New Testament that the body of Christ on earth is us as well. And so there's this, this, uh, this idea of anticipation with the pushing back of darkness that we are following in Christ's lead as the kingdom of darkness is defeated. Well, that's still not fully yet complete as we await the return 
of the Lord. And so Paul gives us the promise that until then, his grace is with us. Well, this week, he concludes the entire letter of Romans in one sentence. It's a long one, split up into three verses, but actually that's one sentence from start to finish. It is a doxology, a praise to God, giving him glory for everything that we have learned from this letter. And two things in particular that I think is important to talk about this morning is can we say the gospel of Christ is my good news? You notice in that reading, Paul said, my gospel. Well, for me, when I first read that, like a little flag went up. What does it mean? His gospel. I thought it was God's gospel, right? So the question we're going to get to ask ourselves, and it's a penetrating one, is the gospel of Christ my good news? And then secondly, we're going to see how Jesus has revealed God's story of salvation throughout history. It's one of the big things that Paul is leaving with us as well. So let's look at that first one. We're just going to go through the first half of verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ. So there's the perking of the ears, my gospel. Did that get you too when you read it? Like what does he mean by that? Let's put a pin in there. We're going to come back to it because if we don't, we're going to miss something really important. We're going to skip over this phrase, now to him who is able to strengthen you. This is the beginning of his address as this doxology. He's giving this praise to whom? The one who is able to strengthen you. That Greek word is sterizo, which means to fasten or to secure into a foundation, to give strength so that way when things are battering and beating against it, it doesn't move and it doesn't fail. I think it's important to note that at the end of Paul's letter, he rightly recognizes that the strength that continues us on in our faith and in our life does not come from within but without. Culture is constantly telling us, do you need more strength? Look into yourself. Paul's saying, no, opposite. Look outward. Don't look inward because there is weakness. Look outward so that Christ can strengthen that weakness. He alone is the one who can strengthen us and to fasten us and to establish us. So right off the bat, don't we have a very applicable question that we have to ask ourselves, where do you find your strength? Where do you find your strength? Well, that depends on what you believe true power is. Because whatever you think is truly power is where you're going to run to to receive strength. And ultimately, the world is continually seducing us into alternate means of strength when in actuality, there is no strength there at all. I thought of three examples that I think are really important for our day and time. Do you believe that true power is found in money? If you believe that true power is found in money, then you're going to run after money to provide your strength. You're going to determine your strength based on the numbers in your bank account. And for most of us, you're like, don't struggle with that. Not at all. There are just a few of those numbers that you're talking about in my bank account, right? But for others, it is a, a real struggle. And so you respond to the so-called gospel of wealth. You are the dollar amount in your account. You are what you drive. You are where you live. This is what gives you your status. And your status is where you receive your strength. 
So you respond to that gospel of money and you worship the gods that are associated with it. God called, or Jesus called this God, Mammon, in the gospels. And Mammon demands sacrifice. Mammon demands sacrifice of time, of energy. It demands sacrifice of friendships. It demands sacrifices of marriages. And it demands sacrifices of integrity. So, here comes the caveat. Is there anything wrong with money? No, absolutely not. As long as we remember where it comes from, its source is God, and that money is meant to be stewarded. But money becomes a rival God if we seek to derive our strength from it. What happens? You're on this path for years, and then all of a sudden the economy dips. Or you look at your phone, and you're getting a phone call from Bernie Madoff's secretary. And you don't know it, but your life's about to end, right? Why? You responded to a false gospel. Do you believe that true power is in sexuality or beauty? I think this affects men and women very similarly, but different. So I want to nuance them. Men, if you find your true power in sexuality, then you are going to find your strengths in pursuit of women. Whether that be in your mind, whether that be on your computer, whether that be in person. Women, if you find your empowerment in sexuality and beauty, then you are going to continually compare yourself to other women. And when you, deteem, you see yourself as, as better, then you're going to receive strength. You will tally the looks that you garner from men. And like men, you also pursue men through thought and computers and person. Caveat again, is there anything wrong with sex inherently? Not at all. In fact, when it's between a man and a woman and the covenant of marriage, that was happening when God called creation very good before the fall. The problem comes in when it becomes a rival God, when we begin to worship it and derive our strength from it. So what happens when we look for strength in sensuality and sexuality? Well, age, addiction, broken relationships, and it's too late. We've responded to a false gospel. Here's something that is really timely, and I think needs to be addressed specifically today. Do you believe that true power comes in racial supremacy, in some kind of race-based tribe? If you do, you will seek strength by slandering the image of God and other human beings who happen to have more or less skin pigmentation than you do. You will kindle a fire that comes from the pits of hell that drove entire countries to selectively murder people based on their race. You will find strength in cursing God's brilliant diversity of color and culture. And then what happens? You foolishly protest. You are driven to hatred in your heart. You may even murder. And you contribute to a generational disease we call racism. You've responded to a false gospel. If you are not on Twitter or social media or the news, I don't think we need to look very much further than what's happened in Charlottesville, Virginia, this past weekend. And when I'm looking at that and sort of sorting through the events in that town, there are questions that uh, are, are, I'm being asked of myself. Which people group do I find more important, mine or the people of God? Which culture do I find more important, my culture or the culture of God that is one of redemption and new creation? Which heritage do I find more important, mine or the heritage of the gospel that was given to us by the saints? 
it's not God's way, then it's your way. And your way, as we can see, doesn't lead to good places. It leads to naivety and narrowness and bigotry and ignorance. I saw this picture of this guy who is hopelessly confused because he is finding his strength in racial superiority. And his hopeless confusion is becoming just, just this crazy irony because in a picture from the protest, there was a man who was holding two objects. The first object was a sign with sayings from Jesus. And in his other hand, he was holding uh, a Nazi flag. This is the apex of ignorance and irony. The thing that he doesn't recognize is that the man's sayings that he is holding was a brown-skinned Jew who spoke Aramaic. And yet he has a Nazi flag in his other hand. And here's the the thing. He wasn't just a brown-skinned Jew who spoke Aramaic. He is. He resurrected three days after death. The disciples said, that's Jesus. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Think of the irony behind that image. There's no room in the kingdom of God for racism. What does the gospel say? We all know this, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That's everybody. That he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For what reason? For the redemption of all races, all ethnicities, all tribes. Revelation 7, 10, Revelation 7, 9 through 10 paints a picture of what heaven is like. John, seeing a vision, says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Every nation, all tribes, all people. The heaven of the gospel looks a lot like the hell of the racist. And if that's not something you want to get to, there's a problem you've responded to a false gospel. But here's the thing. Have you responded to a false gospel? Because we all have. Not a single person has not responded to a false gospel, whether it be pride or idolatry or money or sexuality or racism. We've all done it. We've all responded to a false gospel. Here's the thing. There's good news. There is a actual gospel. God does not want you to fail. And that's the good news. He wants to see you flourish in joy. He wants to see you renewed in the kind of peace that only he can give. He wants to see you strengthened in his loving power. You see, even after we respond to false gospels, The one who gives us the gospel, the strength of all strength, tenderly calls us to him, the source that gives us all loving power. We need only believe that Christ is the true power. And we have good reason. He's creator and sustainer of the universe. Colossians tells us, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in all things hold together in him. 
He upholds all power and authority in heaven and on earth. Ephesians 1, 20 through 21, the father raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and power and authority and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the age to come. The Lord Jesus is a timeless, immovable, unbreakable rock, a foundation that remains eternal and a source of power that never ends. There is no power crisis in Christ Jesus. Who strengthens you? Upon what are you being strengthened? Whose kingdom do you belong to? What gospel have we responded to? And where do you find your strength? Because friends, there's only one source of that strength that gives us true and permanent and never-ending power in love. And that strength comes from a story. It's the story of God who gives strength to the powerless by sending his son to become powerless. And we were reminded of that story even here with Paul's verse as he continues on because this is why I believe Paul goes so quickly to his next point in this passage. Where does your strength come from? He's asking us in a not-so-roundabout way. And then he immediately goes to the gospel. Read with me again, verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Christ. Okay, this makes our ears perk, doesn't it? What does Paul mean by my gospel. Some of us might even think, how dare Paul say my gospel, right? Because some things can be lost in what we're trying to understand Paul to say. So there's a few possibilities of why Paul here says my gospel. And I don't think the answer is pick one, two, or three. I think it's a combination of all of them. First, we have to remember Paul has already established the author of the gospel, all the way back in Romans chapter 1. He set the tone for whose gospel is the good news in the very first words of his letter. He called it the gospel of God, and he called it the gospel of the Son. Remember, the word gospel in Greek is euangelion. It's two words, eu meaning good, like euphoric or euphonic, and angelion meaning message. It's where we get the word angel from, which means messengers. So the good news is God's good news. And the good news is the son's good news. Paul has already established that fact. He's not saying that he owns this good news. He's not the author of this good news. That is God and his son, Jesus Christ. Second, we also have to remember that the apostle Paul is combating different gospels. I'll put those in air quotes or false gospels. Paul is not like us. I don't know, maybe I'll take a survey. Has anybody been visited by the resurrected Lord and called to be an apostle? No. So, so he is not like us. He has very special authority that has been given to him directly by Christ. And so in his time of preaching, Paul was rivaling so-called gospels that when you scratch the surface just a little bit, turn out not to be good news at all. And we, we thought about some so-called different gospels today, but Paul was dealing specifically, habitually, with one false gospel, which is the false gospel of works righteousness. That gospel preached, for God to love you, you must do blank. False. The real gospel is, you've done blank, 
and God loved you anyway. You need only respond in faith. So he's constantly pushing back against the false gospels. And surely, with Rome as the capital of the known world at the time, there would have been false gospels floating around. So Paul says, my gospel to ensure that the church of Rome knows that there's apostolic authority behind this, that the apostle Paul has the authority and he's using the authority to kind of put a seal or a stamp of approval on this gospel. There is a letter of provenance that goes from Paul's gospel all the way back to the preaching of Jesus Christ himself. You can check it. Paul's gospel here is no mere fabrication. It's neither fake. It's real. It's authentic. It's trustworthy. How do we know this? Well, third reason. Paul actually sets his gospel next to the preaching of Christ. Did you notice that? One, according to my gospel, and two, the preaching of Jesus Christ. In other words, look at them both. If you want to verify, Paul says, my gospel, then just look at the preaching of Jesus Christ and you will see they are one and the same. He just warned the church at Rome to watch out for smooth talkers and deceivers and Danny DeVito in a used cars salesman outfit, right? So fact check him. He's putting his mouth, or he's putting his money where his mouth is. He's saying, look at my gospel in distinction with Christ. So he's not saying he's the author. He is sealing his gospel with apostolic authority, and he's encouraging people to study. But I think there's still one more thing happening here. And I think this is something that, that even hits home at us. It's a very powerful thought, too. Why say my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ? Aren't those merely synonyms? Aren't they just two ways of saying the same thing? No, but that's the point because they should be. Isn't Paul, by saying my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, just saying the same thing twice? No, but that's the point because it should be. It should be him saying the same thing twice. Paul should be able to say my gospel is the same message is the preaching of Jesus Christ. He's already hinted this to us back in chapter 15. He said, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bringing the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. You see, Paul was so transformed by the power of the gospel and his encounter with the Lord Jesus that his life message, what he said in word and what he did in deeds aligned with the very gospel itself. His gospel was also the gospel of Christ. In other words, Paul saw his story as lining up with the grand story of God's salvation. Paul saw his gospel and his subjective experience as lining up with the objective preaching of Jesus Christ. What he felt to be true of himself, he knew to be true of himself in Christ. The gospel to Paul was no mere lofty idea. It's a script of a cosmic play that God is the director of. And Paul knew that he has a part and he has lines and he has a cue and he's part of this cosmic play. So his good news was engulfed in Christ's good news. Here's a challenging question 
can we, with Paul, say, my gospel is the preaching of Jesus Christ? Can we, like Paul, say, my story has been so wrapped up in God's story, I fail to see the distinction any longer? That's a hard question to answer, and it's a convicting one because it reveals so much about what's going on in our understanding of the gospel and in our own hearts. Is your good news, in other words, engulfed in Christ's good news? Can you say, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me by word and deed? Is the gospel of Christ your good news? When you speak of Christ, when you tell people about Christ, Are you talking about the Christ of Scripture? Are you talking about the Christ in the Gospels? Or are you talking about another Christ altogether? When you live for Christ in your deeds, do your actions align with his teaching? Or by your deeds, do you preach a different gospel? One that does not align with the teaching of Christ. When you tell people what you live for, is it for the Lord? Jesus? Is it for the Holy Spirit, the Father? When you highlight the best parts of your life, is Christ there? Is he at the core? Is the Spirit there? Is the Father there? Paul is leaving us with a very convicting thought, isn't he? Does my good news align with the preaching of Jesus's good news? Because if it does not, whose gospel are we preaching? Whose gospel are we living go back to the earlier point, if it doesn't, are we preaching and living the gospel of wealth? The gospel of sexuality and beauty, the gospel of racism, the gospel of fill in the blank, because there's billions of them. None of these so-called gospels are actually good news, by the way, which is why it is so important to see ourselves wrapped up in the story of what God has done through his son. Is the gospel of Christ my good news? Not mine in authorship, not mine in ownership, but mine in agreement and in similarity and in harmony. Does what I preach in word and deed align with the preaching of Christ in word and deed? Would Christ himself recognize the gospel as I am preaching it in word and deed better? Does Christ recognize my gospel as I'm preaching it in my life in word and deed. Let's shift gears. Did you know that your story of God's love and his pursuit for you did not start when you first encountered him, when you first heard the gospel? That this big story that that God has been uh, authoring goes far beyond even your birth. The story of God redeeming you is a story that starts all the way back at the beginning, in the beginning, to use biblical language, when God put into action a plan that included your redemption before you were even born or the first thing was even created. This story has been told to creation from the beginning and is revealed to us through the Lord Jesus. That's the next big thing that Paul is telling us on his way out as he lands, Romans, verses, the rest of verse 25 through 26. Read with me. 
according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Well, what is this revelation of mystery? We, in the 21st century, in our American context, have a completely different understanding of mystery than the first century readers of this letter would have thought of. We think of mystery as like there's a puzzle and now it's finally revealed. Some of us might even think of mystery like this. Like, ah, the bad guy wasn't a ghost. Thank you, Scooby-Doo and friends, right? This is not what Paul is saying at all. This is not the kind, Paul's not like, haha, it was Jesus the whole time, right? That's not mystery in the New Testament. Mystery is something that was previously misunderstood, but now understood, previously concealed, but now revealed. I like to think of it more along the lines of the sixth sense. Who has not yet seen the sixth sense? I'm so sorry, I'm gonna ruin it for you. You've had plenty of time. <laughs> Movie's been out since right after we started Romans. So you had time to know this story, okay? It's a story about a guy who goes through uh, this whole movie and he's, he's counseling this kid who sees dead people and then he's trying to help this guy, this little kid out and then at the very end he realizes he's been dead the whole time and he can see other dead people that other people can't. And it's just the second time you watch the movie is completely different, isn't it? You're walking through and the director's got you. M. Night Shyamalan, right? This was one of his good ones, <laughs> right? He's got you the whole time and then at the very end you're like, oh, pfft. I'm rewinding this, and I have to watch it again because that's how old the movie is, okay? I'm rewinding all the way back. And, it, and the second time you watch it, you can't help but see that, yeah, he is dead. It was obvious the whole time Bruce Willis's character was dead. I think of it more along the lines of that. You're walking through the story of the Old Testament, through the prophecies of the prophets, through what God is doing from Abraham all the way through to uh, the Babylonian captivity, and... You get it, you see the trajectory, but there are some things that are still off, right? You, you still quite don't get the whole picture. Jesus comes, he preaches, he ascends to the Father after his resurrection. Now you go back in the Old Testament and you can't help but see him there, right? You can't read the Old Testament different. You can't read the Old Testament the same way again, right? That's more along the lines of the mystery that Paul is talking about. Something that was previously misunderstood, now understood. Something that was previously concealed, now revealed. Here's a great explanation. One of my favorite. The mystery of marriage. In there's some, some people are like, yes, what is the, tell me, what is, I've been trying to figure it out for 20 years, right? The mystery of marriage. Ephesians 5, Paul is talking about marriage and he is likening the husband and wife uh, is an allegorical picture of Christ in the church. And so he says, uh, ladies, you are like the church, the bride of Christ. And so you are to love your husband and serve him in the same way that the church loves and serves the, the church. You're like, well, wait a minute, that's not fair. Paul's not done. Then he goes to the men saying, you are like Christ in this relationship and you're also to love the church so much so that he died for her. And so there is this equality of love and there is this reciprocal covenantal relationship. Where did he get that idea from? Well, he ties it to the quintessential biblical passage about marriage. Genesis 2.24. This lays the foundation for a biblical understanding of marriage. Jesus quoted it when he was talking about 
marriage. People were coming up to him, be like, what do you think about divorce? Jesus is like, here's my deal. Have you not read PhDs in Old Testament? So this is kind of a jab. That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one and whatever God has joined together, let not man separate. So that passage that he reads, the man leaves his father and mother and the two become one flesh, that's Genesis 2.24. Jesus quotes it. Paul also quotes it in the passage that we're talking about. Ephesians 5 says, he who loves his wife loves himself. Why? So you're supposed to be one flesh, right? For whoever, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So there's his, his archetypes, right? There's his, the, the foreshadowing or, or the proclamation of what the male and the female are supposed to be, Christ and the church. Because we are members of his body. And here he quotes Genesis 2.24, Therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There is a concealment of meaning here, though. And Paul's about to reveal it to us. There's a mysterion. There's a Greek. The surface level, Genesis 24, means something very clear to us. It teaches us a lot about marriage. Marriage is birthed from previous marriages, right? Man leaves male and female who already had kids, and then they start the process over again. Marriage is between a man and a woman. Marriage is a covenantal love. Marriage is consummated. That's two becoming one flesh. Marriage is meant to provide a familial unit for children. Because to continue on this chain, you need to have children. Whether that means through natural birth or adoption. That's all true. And it's very, very important. But it's not the whole truth. There's a core meaning behind even what we just read. That Paul says marriage has a primary purpose that we're not seeing until Christ made it clear. The core purpose of marriage is not to create a new set of parents. It's not to join a man and a woman together. It's not to provide the ideal uh, environment for sexual relationships or the ideal environment for community and relationship. It's not to provide a safe and flourishing environment for children. Although marriage is those things, it's not the primary. That's not at the core. Paul says at the core is this, this mystery, mysterion, the same word he uses here at the end of Romans 16. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it, marriage, refers to Christ and the church. You see, the core purpose of marriage, as revealed through the gospel, is now fully revealed. The core purpose of marriage is to proclaim the gospel to creation, whether you know it or not. Whether you are aware of it or not, if you marry someone, you are proclaiming to creation the gospel. In marriage, the husband represents Christ and the wife represents the church. The covenantal love represents God's love for us and our response to him. That's the core purpose of marriage. And think about how beautiful that is because when did God establish that institution? Before or after sin enters the picture? Before, that's Genesis 2. Sin doesn't come in until Genesis 3. So already the gospel was being declared for who knows how long. We don't know how long Adam and Eve were there. For who knows how long to creation before sin was even a thing requiring the gospel to fix the problem. That's the mystery revealed. That's God's providence and his sovereignty. That's proof positive that the gospel is not plan B. 
He had our redemption in mind even before we could even conceptualize needing redemption at all. That's why Mysterions are awesome. It peels back what God has been doing the whole time. Now, what happens if we refuse to understand these mysteries in the Old Testament through Christ? Well, we remain in darkness. We experience unfruitful spiritual growth. We go off the rails. Sometimes we're wooed away by smooth-talking heresy salesmen like Danny DeVito. I'm going to keep him in the sermon as long as I can. (laughs) An unrelated note, I want to talk to you about Mormonism. The concept of Mormon marriage, I think, is a great example of what happens when we refuse to look at the picture of marriage as it's meant to be looked at. Because even in Genesis 2.24, when we see a picture of Christ in the church, there is a trajectory that does not end until when? When does that seed fully grow? When does the core and purpose of marriage find its ultimate fulfillment? Revelation. The wedding of Christ and the church for eternity, right? So you can even see in Genesis, we're going all the way through to Revelation. Here's the thing. In Mormonism, concept of marriage is very different. A long time ago, God was born, and he has flesh, just like we do, and he still has flesh, just like we do today. He's born, he grew up, he met a woman, he loved her, they got married, they did enough good works, and they ascended to godhood. Those two then became our gods of this universe, of this planet. Not sure, but all we need to know is that God and his wife are currently ruling and reigning over us. And the idea is that we would get married and go along that same path. So when you get married in this life, your marriage doesn't end. Your marriage continues to go into eternity with you, depending on the level of glory you receive in the afterlife. Now, I dislike loaded questions, right? Who's gotten a loaded question before? Here's one. Have you told your mother that you hate her yet? It's a loaded question. You can't answer it. It's impossible, right? Because if you say no, they're like, well, when are you going to tell her? You're like, stop. You know, like, but if you say yes, well, you're a terrible son. You're a terrible daughter. Why would you say that, Right? I get a loaded question from Latter-day Saint friends that I dialogue with a lot, and this is their favorite one. Don't you want to be with your wife for all eternity? Like, come on, man. <laughs> She's right there. Come here. I'll tell you. I'll tell you right here. Right? <laughs> it's a loaded question. It's a device, a rhetorical device meant to push you back into a corner, right? Because if I say no... I don't want to be with my wife for eternity. What kind of husband are you? Like, what's your wife's number? I'm telling her, right? But if you say yes, they're like, well, your belief doesn't allow for that, but ours does. So why don't you just come on over, right? Took me a while to figure this one out. But one day it dawned on me, reading Revelation, that they're missing the point of marriage entirely. They're missing the point. If marriage is meant to display the gospel... And the gospel is culminated at the wedding supper of the bridegroom and, and, and the church. Why do you want to take types and shadows into the real thing with you? Why do you want to take the foretaste with you into an existence that is the fulfillment 
in the totality, in the ultimate sense. In other words, we as the church are going to experience something far beyond and greater than the institution of marriage could ever offer us in this life or in the Mormon context, the life to come. That's not to say if your wife or your husband is a believer, you're like, well, see you later for eternity, right? It's just meant to say that our relationships are so radically changed and our love and our covenantal relationship with God is so radically renewed and confirmed in an ultimate sense that the types and shadows of marriage, though they served as a very good message, has finally been fulfilled. Why are you carrying that with you? I think the author of Hebrews in chapter 7 would have this to say. They serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. You see, with Paul, the author of Hebrews tells us, it is Jesus whom we must understand everything that God has done, is doing, and will do. Hebrews 1 opens this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by the Son. Now, through Christ, we receive a fuller understanding of the prophets. We see a clearer vision of the Old Testament events. In other words, Christ is the cipher to unlocking the mysteries of God. He's the cipher to unlocking the mysteries that we see in the Old Testament. He is the promised seed, singular, of Eve that would crush the head of the serpent. He is the ark who, being found in him, we are carried safely through judgment. He is the greater Isaac, a son whose father offered him up for sacrifice in full anticipation of resurrection. He is the greater Joseph, who even though he was betrayed by his own brothers, stayed his hand in mercy and showed them gracious love and forgiveness. He is the great spotless lamb whose blood being sacrificed on our behalf provides and protects us from God's wrath. He's the greater Moses who leads us through a dangerous wilderness to a greater promised land. He is the whole purpose of the biblical feasts, those events and holidays that foreshadow Christ's death and resurrection. He is the rock in the desert who when struck spilled forth life-giving water. He is the greater Joseph who goes before us in our contentions with our enemy. He is the greater David whose power and authority and throne will never end and can never be defeated. He's the greater Jeremiah who calls God's people to repentance and salvation. He's the fourth person in the fire alongside Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's the suffering servant of whom Isaiah prophesied. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was pierced for our, or crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, we have turned aside every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But that's not it, because he's the greater Jonah, who though death swallowed him up for three days, was released and alive and walking around on the third day. He is the son of man whom Daniel witnessed receiving all power and all authority from the ancient of days in Daniel 7, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What else can we say to this revelation of mystery than amen? Amen, amen, amen. That's exactly where Paul goes. Isn't it? That's exactly where Paul goes when he considers everything that he shared with us through Revelation and in this beautiful, all-encompassing thought of Christ as the great revealer of God's mysteries. Verse 27, 
To the only wise God be glory forever. Through Jesus Christ, amen. Take into consideration the weight of this fact. Paul is closing the entire letter to the Romans on the glory of God. The exclamation point to the end of Romans is here, God's glory. To the only God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. God alone deserves the glory for everything. This was the cry of the reformers, soli deo gloria. Glory to God alone. I'm, I'm reviewing a book for a journal. It's taken me a long time to get through it because I disagree with so much of it. And I, I'm having to trim down, critique. But I, I don't think it's ironic that I would come to this passage and see the exclamation point of God's glory and how everything is God's glory at the end of Romans and read this passage from this book from a so-called gospel. The author said, the purpose and project of man is not to glorify or to serve God, but rather the inverse. It's God's project and purpose to create the conditions for human happiness by him bringing to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Wrong. Wrong. Read it again, what Paul says, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Never, ever, ever let anyone tell us otherwise. You see, God has orchestrated all things to culminate in his glory. He has arranged history so that he will receive all honor, praise, and thanksgiving. Because what else in this universe deserves glory than the ultimate good and ultimate love and ultimate holiness and ultimate beauty? So it's no surprise to me that Paul lands his letter here as he considers everything that Christ, our mystery revealer, has done. His heart surges with praise to God. And he's overwhelmed with God's wisdom and glory that he cannot help but sing this doxology. God's glory reaches its apex through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, and in the gospel. And its fruit is a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multicultural family adopted into the king of kings at the defeat of Satan, sin, and death. Jesus wins, period. God gets the glory. And to that we say amen. We say amen to the God-man who is tender with the marginalized, patient with the racist and ignorant, gentle with sex workers, fearless in the face of criticism and death. We say amen to the one, our perfect spotless lamb, who so beleaguered the grave that it couldn't hold him. And on the third day after his crucifixion, he mocked our enemy by brushing off the shackles of death as if they were little bits of twine tied to his hands like a, by a child. And we say amen to our risen Lord who saves and redeems us, not merely to experience our personal salvation, but to be brought up into a grand story of cosmic reconciliation and redemption and combat against everything that corrupts and steals and perverts and kills and destroys. God is making his story our story. He's making his good news our good news. That is worth saying amen and singing to. Do you agree?